Tonight we're going to be in the book of Joshua, the last chapter, chapter 24. The last time we were in Joshua, we covered the first part of his speech to pretty much the Israel's leaders. And tonight we're going to cover the second part of that speech to all Israel. So if you weren't here the last time, uh, get the free download so that you can get a little bit of a context of the, of the whole chapter. First, starting with verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, according to what I did among them. Afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And they brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continues to bless you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho fought against you also, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyard and olive groves which you did not plant. So what happens here is you're getting children of Israel getting a history lesson from Joshua. And it's very important that they learn this history lesson. There was a philosopher, his name was George Santayana. He had a very famous quote that's been changed a lot over the years. But his original quote was, he said, those who do not learn from the past are condemned to repeat it, word for word. And that's true. That's true. If we don't learn from the past, we usually make the same mistakes over and over again. So this is a very important history lesson from Joshua to the children of Israel. And you also see that when Joshua is speaking to them, he becomes... God's representative to them, because you see him start to speak in the first person as if God was speaking to them directly. So I'm just going to, I I took the maps, and you know, I like to not gloss over some of these places, because they have a lot of significance. The first place that we look at is Shechem. It's located between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Now look, look at the map there. It's right in the center to the left of the Jordan River. See Shechem right in the center. A little bit above is Mount Ebal. And below that is Mount Gerizim. This is appropriate because 
Shechem is where God appeared to Abraham early on and promised Canaan to his descendants. So, so now you see that the children of Israel have realized that promise many years later. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, kind of apt opposites. Mount Ebal represented the curse uh, of disobedience, and Mount Gerizim represented the blessing. If you look in your concordance, you can see the different uh, portions of Scripture where that's explained. In Mount Ebal, an altar was built to God, and the law of Moses was written on stone monuments, again, representing the curse of disobedience. And really, in the New Testament, we know that's the curse of the law. The law cannot be kept. When we look at the law, we see our own failures. So actually, Mount Ebal, when we look at Mount Ebal, we're reminded of why we need a Savior. The other part is Mount Gerizim, again, representing the blessing. But the interesting thing is, there's always a choice to choose, the blessing or the curse. It's our decision. Abraham, these are your descendants. You're going to get the land of Canaan. Look to the north, you get this. Look to the south, you get this. It's your decision which way you'll go in that valley. Verse 2 and 3. You see that even before Abram uh, was called, he worshipped idols. Him, his father, his household, right? They were in the... uh, Ur of the Chaldees. It was a very pagan place. The ironic thing about the father of the Jewish nation was, prior to being called by God, he was an idol-worshipping Gentile. Wrap your mind around that for a little bit. (laughs) He was the father of the Jewish nation, but before being called and chosen by God, he was doing what everybody else was doing. And you can see ourselves in that before we were called. You can see that, I mean, who among us here was perfect? Who among us here before uh, receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior had really anything to offer God, could exchange anything to God and say, you know, I think I'm worthy to to get into your kingdom? None of us. So even though there was nothing special about Abram, but God called him, we can make the same application to ourselves. We needed Jesus to die for our sins. Speaking of the river, the river is understood as the Euphrates. Euphrates. Euphrates is an ancient river, and it goes all the way back to the creation account in Genesis. Now, if you look at the map, okay, you don't see the Euphrates here, but on the bottom right it shows you the direction of where the Persian Gulf is, where uh, the Arabian Peninsula is, and, and Iran is over there, the old Persian kingdom, etc. But what you have is from the, the Persian Gulf, okay, The Euphrates River runs northwest, spanning several countries, pretty much going into Syria and beyond. I don't know how well you are. In my mind, I enjoy the geography so I can picture how it runs. If you look in the back of a lot of your study Bibles, you can see the Euphrates River from start to finish. Uh, The Euphrates River also divides Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. So uh, it really goes into a lot of history there. Verse 4, we see that Mount Seir was given to Esau, okay? Uh, If you look down on your map to the right, just before the bottom, you see Moab and then Edom. Uh, Edom was, the mountain range of Edom was given to Esau's descendants. Mount Seir is located in there. And that's significant significant because there was a lot of friction between Jacob and Esau. A A lot of bad blood, right? A lot of bad family blood. And you see later on in Numbers 20 that when uh, the children of Israel are, you know, they failed at Kadesh Barnea. One thing I don't have here is Kadesh Barnea. But Kadesh Barnea is, if you look at the Dead Sea and go to the left, 
just before you get to the uh, Mediterranean, Kadesh Barnea is down there in the south. That's where they failed the first time, the children of Israel. So they had to wander in the wilderness. And if you look the route that they take, it's really at the bottom of the page. They went to the right underneath where the Dead Sea is, around Edom, Moab, and then you go north, and then you see once you get to the top of the Dead Sea, they crossed over the Jordan. Okay, So that was the route that they took before entering the Promised Land. I've actually learned a lot about the routes through studying this. This is something I just wasn't very well versed on. But what you find in Numbers 20 is that the Edomites, or the descendants of Esau, many years later still wouldn't let the Jews pass through their land. All right, there still was uh, friction there between those brothers. And what's interesting is later on in life is the Herods that we're going to cover also on Sunday, uh, the, you know, the governor kings of the Roman Empire, Herod, all the bad Herods, they were Idumeans. Idumeans were also descendants of Esau. And you saw a lot of the friction between the Herods and the Jewish people. Okay, verse 8 and 10. He speaks also about the Moabites. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Remember, Abraham and Lot, he says to Lot, where do you want to go? Lot goes, I want to go to the well-watered plains. He goes, okay, I'll take everything over here. There was also friction between uh, Abraham's camp and Lot's camp, and they split up for a while there. But the Moabites were descendants of Lot, and if you look over here on the map, just to the right of the Dead Sea, east of the Dead Sea is Moab. That was another place that, uh, they, that caused problems. And that story has to do with Balaam. Numbers 22 speaks about Balaam and Balak. Balak was the king of Moab, and Balaam was a prophet that God spoke to. And Balaam liked money. And the more Balak offered money to him to curse the children of Israel, he kept trying to do it, but God wouldn't let him. So he was um, really not in ministry for the right reasons. It's a good picture there. So what happens is Balaam realizes that God's not going to curse the children of Israel, uh, but Balak wants them cursed, so he comes up with this plan. He says, you know, get some, you know, women to be provocative and to seduce the men of Israel, and you could get them to curse themselves through fornication and, and that kind of thing. And that's what happens in this uh, portion of Scripture. Uh, you go back in Numbers 22 and after that. So anyway, you see that, that portion. So everywhere the children of Israel went, before they actually got into the promised land, they, they really ran into a lot of problems. Okay, verse 12. Interesting portion of scripture. God says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Um, curious point there, hornet. Some people have speculated, were they literal hornets? <laughs> Was it a pestilence? Was it a picture of other armies that actually weakened the Canaanites and these peoples before the children of Israel went, kind of softened them up a little bit? Was it the reports of the children of Israel and the great things that God did to sap their strength? Was it anything to weaken them, or was it just hornets? Sometimes we just say, well, maybe God just sent these nasty hornets in there, and I mean, not for nothing, but if a hornet invaded your home and where you were staying and they kept stinging you, you might say, well, baby, it's time to move. Let's get out of here, right? So it could be literal hornets. Actually, I looked up. It piqued my curiosity, so I, of course I had to look it up. Hornets. <laughs> they're a type of wasp. They're from the Vespidae family, and they're actually different from bees. Hornets and bees are different. There's different varieties, and some have very painful stings. 
And hornets, unlike bees, a bee puts a stinger in you and it, it pumps the venom, and then the bee dies. And you only get one shot to, to, to get you. But hornets can actually sting multiple times. When I was a little boy, I actually had a hornet sting me. It was a, it was a big hornet. Actually, when you're a kid, it looks really big. But this sucker got me under the arm. I didn't know he was there, and I put my arm down, and he just kept stinging and stinging. And I had all these welts underneath my arm from one stinking hornet, and he got away afterwards. So it's pretty awful. So it could have been just hornets. <laughs> so I'm not going to make any major theological treatise on um, hornets. It's probably literal. Verse 13, God says, I like this part. He says, I've given you a land for which you didn't labor. you got cities which you didn't build. And you dwell in them, and you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you didn't plant. Hey, guys, don't take it for granted. I think that's the message there. Remember who it was that gave you these things. Be grateful. Good lesson there. It's a reminder of all they have and why they have it, and who was the author of why they have it. And you, you can always make the application to your own life. I mean, I think about my life. What do I have that I cherish most? You know? Every one of us can think about that and something comes to your mind. Could be your family, could be security, could be, well, certainly salvation should be up there in the top three. Uh, but what do you have and why do you have it? Um, the fact that my, my family, my wife and my son are in good health and I have them, um, that's every day that I have them, I should enjoy them because, you know, God gave them to me. So I, I need to be thankful. We need to be grateful. Two points, on, or one point on this section is, one, you see a progression, wrapping up these first 13 verses. God chose Israel, God delivered Israel, God guided Israel, and God gave them the land that he promised, hence the name, the promised land. Actually, the other thing is, it reminds me of Stephen, if you remember Stephen uh, before the Sanhedrin. He explains to the children of Israel, he explains to Israel the history this was a thing with, with these Jewish people. They would explain, when they wanted to make a theological point, they explained, hey guys, let's take our history all the way back to Abraham and before, and let's talk about our history. So you see that happening again. And the bottom line, again, it goes back to that quote about those who forget the past are bound to repeat it, and it's usually not in a good way. Verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. It's an emphatic statement. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth. That's a great prescription. Let's take those three apart. Fear, sincerity, and truth. I mean, we could look at that. Fear the Lord. Unfortunately, uh, so in a lot of cases, worship of the Lord has become very cavalier and very unreverent. And, uh, you know, we need to fear the Lord. Sincerity, well, do you like it when other people deal with you in an insincere manner? When they maybe tell you something you want to hear or they uh, say nice things to you maybe to get something out of you? That's insincerity. We don't like it when other people do it. I mean, I've heard people say, just give it to me straight. Just, you know, quit beating around the bush. Be sincere about what you're saying here. And it's the same thing with God. We should love God in sincerity. And also truth. Well, what's the sense in worshiping any God if he doesn't exist? We need to worship him in truth, right? And Jesus came to explain to us, you know, God is spirit. God is love. God is truth. And we need to worship him in truth. 
and put away the gods of your fathers. I think about King Josiah. One of the reasons I named my son Josiah was because I was really taken, taken away by the story of King Josiah. And this is a guy who had a rotten father, Ammon, and had a rotten grandfather, Manasseh. But you know what? He put away the gods of his father. He, 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 put a, he, he had a great revival in the land of Israel. He tore down the altars. And this guy was incredible. But his parents were no good. They had their own gods, and they were the false gods. You know, I think about my life. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and I don't blame my parents. I'm not going there. And I learned some hard lessons because I wasn't raised in a Christian home. But my son has an opportunity that I didn't have. And hopefully I'm, I'm teaching him about the true God at, at an early age, right? Verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, that's an interesting portion of Scripture. He's basically saying, uh, pick a God, make a decision. Because if you think about it, human beings are as somebody put it, incurably religious. We are. And unfortunately, some people are religious where they're worshiping a false religion, a false system, and hopefully over time they come to the truth, right? And even atheists are incurably religious. And let me explain that. For the atheist to believe that such incredible order of the human body and the universe, and they'll all admit, I saw a debate with uh, Christopher Hitchens and Dinesh D'Souza, Sousa was a Christian, wrote, wrote a, a book called What's So Great About Christianity, and Hitchens is an atheist. The atheists get so mad at us because we worship God. But they have a belief system, their own belief system, that says that given enough time, perfection could arise out of randomness, and something can arise out of nothing. They are religious. They're actually worshiping, they're worshiping atheism, which, which takes a much more stronger belief system than we actually have to take if you think about it so he's saying to them the gods on both sides of the river the euphrates and there really was a division between gods you had your babylonian gods you had your egyptian gods right uh, a lot of the children of israel had that still in them from from the egyptian system you had your canaanite gods and you actually had your persian gods which were further east and if you follow history a lot of the persian gods came into India over many years and, and, and actually crept into Hinduism. You can choose false gods anywhere. There are a dime a dozen. Only the true God is unique. That song, Rock of Ages, uh, that, you know, rock, I'm not going to sing it. I'll stop there. One of, the, one of the verses goes, there is no God, there is no God like our God. Okay, I did it. But it's true. There is no God. There is no God like our God. There's many gods, many things to worship, but there's no God like the true God. And today you can have a smorgasbord of thousands of false religions and millions of false gods, but only the true and living God gives, gives life. And Joshua says this, but as for me and my house, and that's on our, our church bulletin. It's kind of like the motto, um, you know, who are you going to serve? For me and my house, I tell you what, I'll make the decision, and, and my household agrees we're going to serve God. We're going to serve the true God. Is it true in our lives, or is it true just in words? Or is it more appropriate, what will we serve? Do we serve God, or do we serve our wealth? 
Do we serve God or do we serve our fears? Do we serve God or do we serve our appearance? And you can, you can fill in the blanks. Do we serve God or do we serve our children? Ourselves, our relationships. Some of us serve our victim complex. You know, we live in, in victimization. And you can put anything that I just said and you can put it in place of God. And that's what you're worshiping. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. If you serve, try to serve two masters and you, you, you know, love the, the one, you're going to hate the other and then vice versa. You, you can only pick one, right? The second point here is that you see the power of choice that God has given us. Now, there is a, a crowd, the sovereignty-only crowd. And the interesting thing is on Sunday we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. But here we're going to talk about the choice of man. You know, God has given man choice. But God is also sovereign, and we're going to cover really a lot of choice here and more sovereignty on Sunday. But you see how they're married together. You know, you can't have one without the other. I was debating a, a hyper-Calvinist, and he was trying to help me to understand the sovereignty of God. I said, bro, I love all those scriptures. I said, I'm with you. I said, you're just leaving out the other half. You see what I'm saying? They, they both come together. So, the Bible constantly commands us to choose God. Think about this. If we didn't have the power to choose God, then why does the Bible continually command us to choose God? It doesn't make sense. Not only would it be foolish to tell people to choose God if they couldn't choose God, but on God's end, it would be cruel to command us to choose him if we didn't have that ability. It doesn't make any sense, you see. Most of the sin in this world is a result of poor choices in life. Not God's choices, but our choices. You see? If you take sovereignty to the extreme, and, and this is actually a doctrine, if you take sovereignty to, to the extreme, since we really don't have the ability to choose, the choices we make that are evil, God wanted us to make those evil choices. Now, God can use the outcome of it, but it actually goes as far as to say that God is the author of evil. He purposes evil, and it's something that's actually good to him, which is really... A deep, deep discussion, which we could get into other books about, but it's, it doesn't work. I saw a really neat documentary a few nights ago about uh, prisons. And, you know, I've done prison ministry. Marty does prison ministry. A lot of people do. It's pretty neat. But one of the things that you normally see come up is it wasn't me. Um, <laughs> it wasn't fair. The judge, this, the, you know, like people don't want to take responsibility. What I saw very refreshing was uh, on the documentary, a woman said she was actually 50 and she was a, a drug addict and she committed some robberies. And she said, you know what? I'm in here because of poor choices that I made in my life. I said, amen, sister, when I heard that. It's true. I can trace a lot of my heartaches in life to poor choices, you know, or a poor choice that somebody made that affected me. But they're all effect, an effect of poor choices. Verse 16. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So what he's saying here is, or uh, the point is to make the dichotomy between the idol-worshipping ancestors and you. Draw the line here. And we can look at that too. Uh, you know, for those of us who weren't, didn't grow up in Christian homes, make a clean break. Change your ways. Uh, don't be like your bad ancestors. Unfortunately, again, as we get into the Herods on Sunday again, uh, all the Herods that we know of all made bad decisions. They were evil men 
you know, the Herod the Great slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem. Antipas killed John the Baptist. Agrippa killed James. And, and we see that it's an awful, they're like organized crime. I mean, they just all make bad decisions, sinful decisions. 17. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now the question is, is this just mere lip service or are we prepared to make a lasting commitment? on their part and, and on our part. And we'll see that when we get into the first chapter of Judges, it doesn't take long before everything goes south again. It's, we're going to see it very quickly. But the world gives lip service to God, and unfortunately sometimes we as Christians do. If you, and I'll just read two portions of scripture, one portion of scripture, two verses. Matthew 15, 7 and 8, Jesus says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now, Jesus is referencing a scripture that was already in existence, which was Isaiah 29:13. So, you know, there's a lot of lip service in the world. Um, a lot of people do a lot of things under the so-called guise of worshiping God, but God wants our true hearts. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. You almost get the impression that Joshua isn't quick. I mean, he's an old guy. He says, I'm old. You know, death's knocking at my door. And he, he loves these people enough and he loves the Lord enough to try to say to them before he dies, because he knows his time is, is coming, hey, guys, this is what you need to do. And they say, oh, sure, Joshua, we'll do it. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> he's pretty much not accepting what they say on face value, their quick, flippant response. Um, he pursues them. Are you sure about this? Because this is what's going to happen. You realize that you cannot serve God and other gods at the same time. And although he's done you good, if you serve other gods and you pull away from God, he's going to cause harm to, to befall you. Don't even think you can be double-minded and enjoy the relationships, uh, the benefit of the relationship with God, he's saying to them. He even says to them that he wouldn't forgive their sins of idolatry when they fall into that idolatry. And they, of course, they're overcome. Second Peter 2.20 speaks about that. Uh, James also tells us that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And we'll see later again in Judges that Joshua turns out to be right. It's good that he presses them. We also have the ability to put seemingly harmless things in the place of God, and therefore they become our gods. Again, it's idolatry. Verse 21. And all the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And again, it, it, you get the feeling that they're trying to convince him. No, Joshua, really, we really mean it, really. <laughs> Verse 22. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. 
Now, I, what I find interesting here is uh, there's no pleading the Fifth Amendment rights here, right? We have our amendments to the Constitution, the rights, the Bill of Rights for us as American citizens that you cannot be, the Fifth Amendment says you cannot be a witness against yourself. You cannot be compelled to, to confess against yourself, right, if you're in testimony. I plead the Fifth. And the judge and the police and the prosecutors cannot compel you under the Fifth Amendment to give testimony against yourself. Here Joshua is saying, forget about the Fifth Amendment. You are witnesses against yourself. You guys are nailed. You said it. It's being recorded. If that's the way it's going to be, then that's the way it's going to be. He said, you made a promise to God. And you know what the Bible says about promising something to God. You better deliver. Ecclesiastes 5, if you're not familiar with that, if you turn to that, you don't have to do it now. But the Bible says it's better not to make any promises to God than to make a promise to God and renege on that promises. So Solomon is saying it's better for you to really think about your promise before you make it because of the consequences. And I've got to tell you, there's very little things that I promise God. You know, I, I'm like, should I really make this promise? Maybe I should just try my hardest because once it comes out of my mouth, I take that seriously, right? Okay, uh, let's see, verse 23. He says, okay, he's talking to them about putting their idols away. I just want to read something in Psalm 115, uh, 115. Only eight verses. We think about idol worship and how stupid it is to us. We think about what they did in those days. And they were very intelligent people. They were very advanced in a lot of the things they did. Uh, very, a lot of them were very good machinists, craftsmen. It just was amazing, the uh, ingenuity. They weren't stupid people that lived back then. But let me read to you in Psalm 115, the first eight verses. It says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy and because of your truth. And why should the Gentiles say, Where now is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You could have a person who is a, a great iron worker or a, some type of silversmith or whatever, and he would take the, you know, the raw material and, and, and heat it up and fashion it and make whatever he needed to make. And then he'd also take the leftover and make a little god out of it and let it cool down and put little eyes and ears, you know, making his own image, and then bow down and worship the god. Part of the, the metal was being worshipped. Part of it was being made to use as farm implements. It sounds absurd to us, but, and I, and I think I've made the point. I think I've hit it home many a times. We're not immune from this because we make gods in our own images. You know, we... We try to, even as Christians, sometimes we, we, we look at a scripture and maybe it appeals to us and we just try to change things so that we make God in a way that he's personal to us but different than the rest of you in a way that, that he'll accept certain, certain things from me or, or he can act a certain way. And I make my own relationship with God instead of the relationship that's set forth in scripture. I'm just amazed at how uh, modern Christianity has departed from the Bible. And you can have all these denominations and have all these rules and all these things that they accept into their, uh, their worship, but it go, totally goes against the scripture. Verse 26. 
Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Now this was a monument of remembrance. He's basically saying to them, as he said in the beginning of the chapter, let this be a reminder to you, because I'm going to die soon. He says that to the people in the beginning. So I can't be around to remind you. So let's set up this monument, and, you know, in a sense, it heard all the words that the Lord spoke, and it heard you saying that you were going to serve him. Now, this monument is the last, if you follow the book of Joshua, it's the last of nine memorials set up specifically for remembering specific events in the book of Joshua. Unfortunately, it's human nature to forget our promises and also our commitments. So, especially with the children of Israel, they needed these monuments as a reminder. There was one in the Jordan, there was one on the other side of the Jordan, there was several in the land of Canaan, and now you see this is the ninth one that's set up. So as they walk by, hopefully a little child would say, Daddy, what is that? Oh, son, that was when we crossed the Jordan and God did this miracle. Oh, that was when we all said that we were going to serve God. We promised him. So you had these really neat monuments. Now, as Christians, you know what? Unfortunately, we do the same thing. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. But sometimes as Christians, we forget our promises and our commitments. You know, um, unfortunately, on, on January 1st, that's when a lot of people say, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do more devotions. I'm going to read the Bible more. And we'll get to that um, in the service that we have just before New Year's Day. But we can make these commitments, and then sometimes as months go by, we kind of trail off and, oh, yeah, I said I was going to do that. So we have to not be arrogant when we look at the children of Israel because we can do the same thing in our own hearts. Verse 29 says, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel had brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar the son of Aaron died, and they buried him in a hill that belonged to Phinehas his son, which was given to him in the mountains of Ephraim. So you basically see the end of the story here. You see some historical notes, uh, some housekeeping. Uh, Eleazar dies, um, uh, Joshua dies, and how they, how they handle things afterwards. And thus the old guard, so to speak, passes away. I had a conversation with one of the uh, sergeants in my department, and I, I've been police officer for 16 years, and he's been even longer. And we have all these 20-somethings coming up, new, new rookies coming up, and they get on the force, and uh, it's like we're the old guard, and they're the new, you know, the new guys. They, they go out, they do their things, what young guys do, and, you know, we're just like the old guys kind of watching these, this new generation come up. But you see the difference between the old guard and the new guard. And the question is, how many generations does it take, okay, from one generation to the other for idolatry to set in? 
and for the past worship of God to disappear. How many generations? Take a guess. One. It only takes one generation, right? King Josiah. I named my son after King Josiah in the Old Testament. Love the story about King Josiah. He was a great man of repentance and reform. But his kids were no good. (laughs) And neither was his grandson. The Bible mentioned three sons that he had, and they were all evil. And his grandson that it mentions, he was evil too. So this great king, great reform, is one of the best kings in the Bible. And his kids, forget it. You know, no good. But conversely, in a good way, it only takes one generation to go from bad to good, as was the case in King Josiah. His father was a wicked man, Amon. His grandfather, Manasseh, was a wicked man too. So, um, you know, one generation from Amon to Josiah, boom, he did a good thing. Verse 30 um, talks about here, they buried Joshua, and it says where they buried him. And basically, Ephraim was the son of Joseph. And if you remember, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Instead of Joseph just getting one inheritance, both of his sons got an inheritance, and the Levites didn't because their inheritance was God. So it still turns out to be 12. Long story short, um, where he was buried, his lot was due west of the Jordan River. So if you're following the Jordan, due west was Ephraim. So that's what that's talking about right there. Question is, what often is the root of the next generation forgetting God? Okay, not always, but what often is the root of the next generation forgetting God? Now, especially keep in mind, looking at the book of Joshua, the answer is not being taught about God. Just like what I said, the monuments, hopefully the father would say to the son, hey, that's what that means, right? Parents, teach your children about God. It's the best thing you can do for them. I remember, oh, six, more than seven years ago, uh, and it's just some things that some speakers say just stick in, you know, they say you remember what, 17% of what a speaker says, so hopefully you're remembering the good 17% of what I'm saying. But I remember Randy Cahill, pastor, uh, Boston, yeah, his heavy, heavy accent. Randy Cahill came at a men's breakfast once, and, uh, you know, he addressed the men over at Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge, and he said, What's the sense if you're all out saving the world, but you're not trying to save your kids? Now, what he meant by that was we can't save our kids. We can try and try. I can try with my son and teach him and all, but only God can save. But we want to give them that example. But I think his point was, especially for pastors, was, you know, pastors have altruistic goals. They want to go out and evangelize, save the world. But what is the example in the home? And that's, that's an important thing. What are we teaching our kids? And I just want to say, especially what, what warms my heart is, especially Joshua in the back and, and Rachel, you know, faithful teens that come out to the Wednesday nights and our newest addition, Alyssa. Um, it just is so cool to see you guys out here. And you have to understand, this is to you, you young people. Your parents are not always going to set the best example. I know all your parents. They're good people, but they're not perfect. And they do the best they can, and they do the best they can in teaching you. And I do the best I can teaching my son. But it, it's that, that desire as parents to do the best you can. And then at the end of the day, when they grow up and they move out of the house and do their own thing, you can say with a clear conscience, I did my best. Okay? So I'm going to read a few things out of uh, Warren Wearsbeeb's book because I think he does a really good do- job with a, uh, a retrospective commentary in 
at the, at the end of the day, Wearsby looks at the book of Joshua and he has some pithy statements about leadership and, and um, lessons learned through Joshua. I'm just going to read a few short paragraphs. The first one, you don't have this, so you'll just have to listen. Wearsby says, God's pattern for life is that suffering must come before glory. This was true of our Savior and it is true of his people. When we suffer in the will of God and depend on his grace, that suffering has a maturing maturing and purifying effect in our lives. Sadly, we have too many leaders today who proudly display their medals, but they cannot show you any scars. Our Lord's Calvary wounds are now glorified in heaven. Eternal reminders that suffering and glory go together in the purposes of God. And I just recently listened because I wasn't here. I was sick last Wednesday to Vinnie Whitehead, one of our elders message last Wednesday. And it's a lot of um, sufferings and trials. So it just and we didn't plan this. But Joshua definitely suffered. Uh, Joshua had defeats. Joshua had people under him who were just giving him a hard time. You know, Joshua was gung ho for the Lord, but he just he, he suffered in, in a lot of respects of itself. Suffering does not make people better. Sometimes it makes them bitter. But when suffering is mixed with faith and God's grace, then it becomes a wonderful tool for building godly character. If suffering alone gave people wisdom and character, then our world would be a far better place because everybody suffers in one way or another. When we accept our suffering as a gift from God and use it for his glory, then it can work in us and for us to accomplish the will of God. Okay. Another paragraph here. Joshua's leadership. Are leaders born or made? Probably both. God gives them the genetic structure they need and then develops their gifts and abilities in the school of life. Management seminars promise to teach leadership, but if there isn't some fuel there to ignite, the fire won't burn. Principles of leadership certainly may be taught, but what it means to be a leader can only be learned on the field of action. To think you're a leader because you attend the seminar is as dangerous as thinking you're an athlete because you watch the Olympics on television. What were the characteristics of Joshua's leadership style? He walked with God. Like Moses, his predecessor, Joshua was a man of God. Whoever the Holy Spirit selected to complete the book of Joshua was led to call him the servant of the Lord, a title not given to everybody in Scripture. We aren't told that Moses, sorry, sorry, we aren't told that God spoke with Moses, with Joshua face to face as he had with Moses, but we do know that God commanded his will to Joshua and that he was obedient. Joshua meditated daily on the law of the Lord and did what it said. He was a man of prayer for the word of God and prayer go together. Last one. Joshua's message. The practical message of the book of Joshua is that God keeps his promises and enables his servants to succeed if they will trust him and obey his word. The spiritual message is that God has a rich inheritance for his children now and they can claim it by faith. This message is amplified in the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 3 and chapter 4. We have seen that when it comes to the things of the Lord, there are several different kinds of people in this world. Most people are still in bondage to Egypt and need to be delivered by faith in Jesus Christ. Others have trusted Christ and been delivered from bondage, but are wandering in the wilderness of unbelief because they won't enter into their inheritance by faith. Still others have sampled the inheritance, but prefer to live on the borders of the blessing. Finally, there are those who follow their Joshua and enter the promised land and claim their inheritance. Remember, the crossing of the Jordan and entering the land of 
Entering the land is not a picture of dying and going to heaven. It is a picture of dying to self and the old life and entering our spiritual inheritance here and now, enjoying the fullness of God's blessing as we serve the Lord and glorify him. It's what Hebrews 4 and 5 call entering into his rest. The greatest need in the church today is for God's people to see how much they are missing by wandering in unbelief or by living on the borderline of the blessing and then to claim God's promises and enter into their spiritual inheritance. We're a deprived people because we fail to, conc- to claim our spiritual riches, and we're a defeated people because we fail to trust our Joshua to lead us into victory. Too many of us are like Achan, stealing from God when we ought to be like Caleb, claiming the mountains and overcoming the giants. So you see, and as we went through Joshua, we talked about uh, you know, the, the wilderness wandering and what it meant, uh, and we talked about even... Uh, the, the two and a half tribes of the children of Israel that wanted the east side of the Jordan. They didn't really want to enter Canaan. And really, like he said, this, you can see different Christians as a picture of these things. Some people are happy, well, I'm just saved. And then they, they really live on the border of, <laughs> of being a pagan and being a Christian because they don't want to be sanctified. They just want what heaven has, and they also want what the world has. And then some say, you know, I'm going to do the routine. I'll go to church. I'll do my, my Christian duty. And they kind of they're kind of close, but they're on on the border. And then you have those who actually enter into the promised land. Sure, it has its challenges, but to quote the military, they want to be all they that they can be for the Lord. You know, I want to enter into that promised land, and whatever has the Lord has for me, that's what I want to be, regardless of the the giants in the land. So I think uh, Wiersbe does a good job summing up. Um, how different Christians are represented by those. Uh, outside of Canaan and inside of Canaan. Okay. Now, the next time we're going to be starting the book of Judges, so I'll just give you a little background tonight, a little refresher. Um, If the marquee for Joshua was, and you remember one of the most famous lines, Joshua 24, 15, was Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, People have it on their placards in their home, engraved, you know, it's... It's very common for Christians to have that. Probably most Christians I know have that somewhere in their home. And it's, it's a great motto. As for me and my house, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to put the guide on in the ground and say, we will serve the Lord. Now, if the marquee, if that's for Joshua, the marquee for judges is, unfortunately, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those of you who are shaking your heads, those of you who have read Joshua know that that's the big motto of that book. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes, which was not a good thing, and we're going to see that. The word judges in Hebrew, Bobby, take note, shafatim. I am denoting plurality in the Hebrew. Uh, Shafatim was a word that could mean judges, rulers, deliverers, or saviors. The word shafat in the singular in Hebrew is a person who maintains justice. He settles disputes. He liberates and he delivers. Now, what you see written all over this, again, you can't see the Old Testament without seeing it with the spectacles of Jesus Christ. Once you put the spectacles of Jesus Christ and you look in the Old Testament, it all makes sense. These judges were a type of Jesus. Now, they weren't God. They weren't close to God. But you can see their role as a type of a a deliverer, a savior, a type of Christ. Even as Joshua in the book of Joshua was a type of Christ. He delivered them. Through him they conquered the enemies. Through him there was blessings. He was a great example. And those are pretty heavy shoes to fill. But sadly, it didn't take long for the children of Israel to stray from the truth, to stray from the law, 
and to stray from their foundation in God. Now, we discussed the history of Israel or any other great nation that it only takes one generation for things to go bad. And the same application, unfortunately, can be made in our country today, and you see it all over the place. (laughs) Sometimes I just, you know, I don't really watch the news that much, but when I go to get my emails, I'll just click on to like a news page, and I'm like, I call my wife, I'm like, Heather, as if you didn't think things could get worse, you see these things that are like, I shake my head, I'm like, boy, the Lord's got to be coming back soon. This is bizarre. I mean, the stories are just getting more bizarre. So... In our country, everyone does what's right in his own eyes. You know, relativism. It's the curse of relativism and pluralism. You know, my truth, your truth, they can coexist. Even though they're, they're uh, against each other and they contradict each other, they can coexist. Now, that defies logic. When I was in college at Rutgers, I took a class called Logic, Reasoning, and Persuasion. Some of the stuff that people believe just defies logic. It doesn't make any sense. And God's a logical God. And even, unfortunately, among Christendom, some have the attitude, well, you know, it's okay for me, don't judge me, I'm just going to do my own thing. Now, you're going to see some victory over the enemies in the book of Judges, but far more failure due to sin than in the book of Joshua. And you're going to see cycles. These are the cycles in Judges. You see the sin of the people, and the sin of the people lives to, leads to oppression by their enemies. Okay? The oppression leads to deliverance by the Judges, And that deliverance leads to uh, repentance by the children of Israel. And then it starts all over again. (laughs) After the repentance, give it some time, the sin starts all over again. Then the oppression. And this goes on and uh, it's actually a little bit depressing, you know. When I read, uh, what did I do, the uh, study on, was it Ecclesiastes? I said, brace yourself because the book's a little depressing. You know, he's just rambling about his life and how he screwed it up royally. Well, the book of Judges can be a little depressing because you see these cycles of hardship and heartache of the people. And then you see victory and then you see them fall back into the same sin. Right? The authorship is largely attributed to Samuel, who was a judge and a prophet. And this is, I just love to do this before the book because it gives you a background of what you're, you're delving into. So if you have some of this background as you go through the book, it helps it. Yeah, it helps you to understand it a little bit better. Authorship. Samuel, a judge and a prophet. Samuel was also a link between the judges and the kings. The time period of the judges spans over 400 years. We saw that when we actually covered Acts 13 on Sunday. Paul talks about how they got the period of the judges. Uh, and since there's no successor to Joshua, Israel maintains herself through tribal sovereignty. And what does that mean? That means that you have your, your tribes that had their plots of land. And they were sovereign. They were almost like little, little uh, countries. But every once in a while there was a crisis in the land and they would get together and decide, all 12 of them, you know, send representatives, how are we going to deal with this problem? But for the most part, they were tribal so- sovereign nations within the land of Canaan. Because of Israel's moral uh, state, falls, they fall into decay, and God allows them to be oppressed by their enemies, then delivered via the judges. And again, we can look at the Christian walk, we can look at our Christian life the same way like, as this. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows some Christian who starts off with a bang, maybe a few years go by, and then they, Satan just he hooks them, whether it's um, adultery or, or money or whatever it is. He, he, he hooks them through the jaw and he pulls them, and you know they have the choice. Well, I'm going to follow this sin or I'm not. And then, hey, what happened to so-and-so? Hey, anybody ever heard that from that person? And boom, they're in this awful sin, and you know they're just pulled in like quicksand. 
So you could even see in the Christian life how people get pulled in like the children of Israel did get pulled into sin and the state that they end up in. Let's pray. Oh, any place.